2: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. This is the secret name of butter. Tongue of the gods, navel of immortality. We will proclaim the name of butter. We will sustain it in this sacrifice by bowing low. These waves of butter flow like gazelles before the hunter. Streams of butter caress the burning wood. Agni, the fire, loves them and is satisfied. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager, bow at the feet of butter. Yeah, I thought we needed a nice regal opening there, and that is a quote from the Rig Veda. Uh, This is from around uh, 1500 BCE. So we are going to really dive
5: into butter. The episode, I wanted to do like an episode title called Holy butter, Batman. It <laughs> seems like that might fit the best, but uh we we are going to talk about religious uses of butter. We're also going to talk about the the basics food science of preparing butter mm-hmm. and then butter war, yeah. which is a very real thing. In fact, so real that it's generated a
1: satirical uh children's book all about butter. Yes, Uh, I imagine a number of you are familiar with this. It is uh, Dr. Seuss's The Butter Battle book, published in 1984. And it's a, it is a satire that tackled the very serious topic of Cold War, uh, the nuclear arms race, and mutually assured destruction. It is the only children's book that I've run across. That ends with the contemplation of mutually assured uh, n- nuclear destruction.
5: Yeah, I, uh you know, I was not familiar with this specific Dr. Seuss book until today. And uh I watched the Ralph Bakshi animated version on YouTube this morning in oh, preparation yeah. for this. And it blew my mind. It was like, I, I, I wonder how it would have changed me as a person if I'd seen this when I was like four or five years old, you know.
1: Yeah, I don't think I saw it when I was a, a kid, uh, and this is the this animated version, by the way, narrated by uh, Charles Durning. Uh, for anyone out that's not familiar with it, you can you should be able to find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it was everywhere. And uh, it's yeah, it's such an interesting story because to to a kid, it's just a goofy tale uh, involving these bird like people, and the, the basic plot here is you have a Cold War between two factions. One side firmly believes that you put your butter on top of the toast, yeah, on top of the bread. And then the uh, the other side, on the other side of this big wall, they believe you put the the butter on the bottom of the bread. And that sounds ridiculous and would never happen with real human beings.
5: <laughs> and yet, when we talk about margarine and butter and what happened with them in the 19th century, going into the 20th century, not that long ago, uh It's not that far apart.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things about butter is that today, especially, we just take it completely for granted. Yeah. uh, Maybe a little less if you, you buy really good butter or you... You get involved in a in a you know a love affair with uh, with with coffee with butter in it with bulletproof coffee and yeah, all that. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, it's just, it's just this is yellow stuff that's maybe delicious and and certainly has a huge role in so many different recipes. Yeah. And large quantities of it go into most you know restaurant foods to make it uh, d- delightful. But we don't think about the wonder of butter. We don't think about the alchemy of butter and the, the miracle of butter. And it's easy to forget that we have all of these wonderful examples from human history where, where as our, as our introduction uh, suggests, there is a, there is something divine about butter.
5: Well, it certainly tastes great. And I, I don't think I've ever met a person who says they don't like butter. You know, like everyone likes butter.
1: It, it's, it's butter. It's yeah. great. It tastes great. But, um, like, I mean, you may not use butter for, you know, you may have made a, an ethical or dietary choice. Yeah, not right. To. Yeah, totally.
5: But, but still it, it tastes, tastes lovely. Uh, it's funny you mentioned like the, the taste of it and like it being so ubiquitous because you're right. Like I use butter every day in cooking some way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just kind of always get the generic store brand, you know, and then I, my wife recently splurged and she bought, that Kerrygold Irish oh, yeah. butter that like really, stuff. really good kind of expensive butter. And it, I I like reserve it for special things. Like I
1: don't, I don't just cook with Kerrygold butter, <laughs> you know, like, like that's, that's special. Yeah. We got into that butter a while back. My wife and I, when we, uh, we briefly did, we did like a summer of the, the coffee butter yeah. concoction.
5: Yeah. I remember hearing about this from
1: you yeah. and, and
5: it, it, that was, that, that kind of went, away didn't it like the bulletproof coffee thing i heard about it for right around the time you guys were doing it and then i it just disappeared
1: well i i, I think it's still around yeah i think a lot of people do what we did and you you do it for a little bit yeah maybe it, you know it, it it forces you to to change your patterns a bit and yeah. then you realize oh well actually i don't need to put butter in my coffee no it
5: more. tastes great probably but it, it's probably i would assume fattening right
1: yeah but I, part of and i don't want to get into the whole like, there are a number of of, of claims that are made about buttered coffee that, yeah. that proclaim that it has almost mystical properties, which is kind of in keeping with what we're going to talk yeah. about today. Yeah. But ultimately, the main benefit of buttered coffee that I found was that it was very filling for someone who normally just has coffee and smoothie for breakfast. Okay, yeah. So I was sustained all the way through lunch and maybe even past lunch okay. without needing to snack. But the, the the curious thing is about a summer of uh, coffee and butter kind of cured me of that. So now a lot of the time I don't snack in the mornings anyway. Oh, interesting. Okay.
5: And you're back to just like coffee and smoothies. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I I might, I might give it a shot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And everything's worth a shot, right? Yeah. Maybe ice cream and butter. (laughs) Now that, that, well, that might not work so well. (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's kick off by talking. Getting in a way, we're going to get this out of the way because I know the one thing that that most of you are not excited about is to hear about the process of creating butter. But mm-hmm. I want to really help frame this in a in an exciting way. I, I want you to think about it not so much as oh, you milked a cow or some other uh, mammal and then you transferred its uh, you transformed its uh, milk into a, a solid substance that's spreadable. Think of it as. A series of three miracles by which one turns the light of the sun into a pat of butter. Again, holy butter. All right. So first, let's just give at least passing credit to the alchemy of photosynthesis. The grass in the field converts energy in the form of sunlight into chemical energy in the form of sugars or other carbohydrates. So that's the first miracle. Second, a female ruminant, uh, be it a cow, a sheep, a camel, a water buffalo, a goat, etc., they consume the grass. And, uh, and truly, as uh, Elaine uh, Kosrova p- uh, points out in her excellent book, Butter, A Rich History, uh, you're better off thinking of it as a uh, of, of the cow or the camel or whatever the animal might be as a mobile um, pr- a harvester and processing unit mm. uh, as opposed to just an animal that's eating. Because the, these ruminants are built to transform grass into milk. Uh, consider the fact that they have this three- or four-chambered stomach. They have an um, upper dental pad instead of teeth that's perfect for for uh, masticating the greens. Each animal puts its own particular chemical spin on the process, but they crunch up the greens and ferment them in their mini-chambered guts, eight hours of feeding with cows, eight hours of ruminating, and then the remains of the day are just resting. So the the maceration... The repeated chewing of the cud, uh, you know, because they'll, they'll swallow it. It'll come back up. Yeah. All that. This helps carry out the second miracle. OK. The transformation of a low fat diet of grass into high fat milk. So the, the broken down food is even further assaulted in the guts uh, of the, of these creatures by microbes in this oxygen free fermentation chamber. The grassy meal is broken down to the, to its very basic elements, strings of carbon and hydrogen molecules. And, uh, then the other bacteria down there, they recombine the elements into volatile fatty acids. This is reminding me of a,
5: a like 4-H trip I went on when I was in <laughs> elementary school. You might have had a similar experience or maybe Somebody out there listening has, uh, you know, they took us around like a working farm and kind of showed us how everything worked. And there was this one cow that had like a window
1: oh cut co- into goodness. its side. Have you, you seen see this? one of these? I, I've yeah. never seen one in person.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, it was almost like there was a, um, a porthole built mm-hmm. into its side and you could look inside. And it's not like you're watching butter being made, you know, but I was like, so fascinated with this as a kid. Like, why, why would you do that? Wouldn't that hurt the cow? Like, it was so strange to me. I, I still, to this day, I don't really think I, I know why other than it's probably for health practices, right. To make sure that everything's working. Okay. To have a window into the cow. Yeah. I I mean, I'm, I'm assuming an educational outreach. Yeah. Well, oh, maybe that was it. It was just for us to be able to see inside the living cow. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it this, was. This
1: requires more more yeah, research. We'll have to look into. We, we need
5: this. to come back to this. Maybe or, maybe
1: someone out there can can fill us in. Yeah. Okay. So we have this uh, this wonderful fermentation process going on, and only half of the fat is coming from the cow's diet. The rest is coming from the cow's own body fat. All right. So there's your second miracle: ruminant milk, a fatty liquid that's uh, that's sole purpose is to ensure the survival of the animal's young. Or you know you know for a bunch of eight creatures to steal, drink, and then process into various butters and cheeses it's also worth noting that the exact composition of this milk is going to vary from species to species with additional factors depending on environment and diet. So a U produces twice the fat content of cow milk. Uh Goat milk has smaller, more digestible fat molecules. Yak milk has less sugar and more protein. Camel's milk has three times as much vitamin C. And water buffalo milk has twice the fat of cow milk. What's like the weirdest
5: type of butter you've ever had? Because I can't, I don't think I've really experimented all that much other than like goat butter probably. Yeah, I
1: don't think I've experimented much at all with um with butters made from different milks. The, yeah. the closest I've come, I guess, is having a few different types of cheeses. So I've, yeah, had, right. I've had sheep cheese. I've had, uh, goat cheese, cow cheese. And if you've had actual buffalo mozzarella, then you've had cheese made from a water buffalo. Yeah. And yeah. Again, the fat content. That's why the, that is the, the, the premier. Oh, I love
5: <laughs> some buffalo mozzarella. My other favorite cheese is, um, from a very specific part of the world, uh, Zakopana, Poland. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, it's a, I believe it's a goat cheese. Uh, but again, oh, just phenomenal <laughs> smoked cheese. Anyways, this
1: is making me hungry. All right, so the animal's milked, and then you have to make cream. That's the next step on our way to actual butter. And this is achieved by allowing the milk to sit and then skimming the resulting layer of fat, fat molecules that have collected on the top. They float it up to the top, you skim it off, and uh, you can make butter from whole milk, like the rest of the milk uh, in that vat, but uh, the more assured route is via the cream
5: Yeah, so like Robert said, we're not going to really, like, hold your hand and walk through the, the, how, the how it's made kind of thing. If you mm-hmm. want to look at that, there's plenty of articles online, but... Basically, there's just tiny fat molecules that float to the top of this milk. They form the cream. You stir them up. That's what the agitation is until they clump together to form wondrous butter.
1: Yeah. The, the, the the cow or the sheep or the camel, they've made this wondrous liquid to feed their, their offspring. Yeah. And the humans have come in and said, actually, we're going to take just the very best of that, the, the very top fatty stuff. And then we're going to process it.
5: It seems really wasteful, but then you realize that there's, there's a, place uh, for all the various leftovers as well. Yeah,
1: because uh, what happens next is you you agitate or stir up the cream. Uh, this shakes the fat molecules out of position and causes them to clump together. Eventually, after prolonged stirring, the fat molecules clump so much that they separate from the liquid in the cream and a solid mass forms. The liquid is buttermilk, and of course that goes on to be used as buttermilk, Yeah, and the solid mass is butter. Behold, the third and final miracle. So a little research, fa- I found this, that
5: one of the earliest recipes for butter involved putting the milk or the cream inside an animal skin and just suspending it and letting it swing back and forth until huh. butter formed. Uh, you know, today, to qualify as butter, it has to contain at least 80% butter fat with no more than 16% water and 2% milk solids. And you need... 21 pounds of cow's milk to make one pound of butter. So to get it to be that consistent yellow that we're all used to, it's actually artificially colored. And this is important. It'll come back around later when we talk about margarine. The way they do that is with something called annatto, which is a food coloring that comes from the seeds of, I believe it's pronounced the acceote tree. Okay. So it's not as yellow as we're used to. That's food coloring that's
1: added to it. Okay. So that's super yellow butter. Mm-hmm. So, at, you know, at, at this point like you said, we could go into greater detail about the chemistry of, of what's going on here, but but hopefully this will give you just a a fresh uh, and new idea of what's going on. Uh, again, I love that idea that solar energy has become fatty delicious butter, has become this yeah. ultimately the super food. <laughs> right. This this premier of food stuff that and, and you'll you'll realize why it becomes so valuable to the humans. Who obsess about it?
5: Well, and I know some of you out there are wondering this because I was when I was doing the research. So if butter comes from milk, is there human butter? And what does that taste like? (laughs) And the answer is yes. I don't know what it tastes like, but yes, there is human butter. In fact, just two years ago, a woman experimented with her own breast milk and shared photos on reddit of the butter that she created and it caused a little bit of a stir the week that she did this there were people were freaking out either uh saying oh my god this is so cool or oh my god that's so disgusting uh but yeah it
1: you know, same process works hmm. with human milk. Now, in her defense, there are people who seem to freak out when they realize that human breast milk exists. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, by I, people, I mean, of course, men. <laughs> I got Not the impression I mean, that, I mean, that was, there's was a certain segment of the male population who seems to want to remain in complete denial. Yeah, of certain biological there
5: definitely seem to be like some people that were like, that is the most disgusting thing ever. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And then the other side was, oh, my God, I want to try that.
1: OK, so that's kind of that's kind of the divide in most Reddit. Uh, yeah. Threads. Yeah. Reddit known for its diversity <laughs> in opinions. Yeah. All right. We're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're getting going to get into this idea of holy butter. We're going to run through uh, various examples from different cultures throughout history. Uh, the, the way that they've obsessed about this substance. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: All right, we're back. So the
5: word butter actually comes from the ancient Greek combination of boo and tyron, which means cow cheese. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, now, we're going to go through a couple of different uses, religious experience uses of butter throughout many cultures around the world. First one we talked about here was Tibetan butter. And I couldn't find a lot on this, so I'd love to know if anybody else out there has heard about it. But apparently uh, it's used in the embalming of bodies, or at least it was used in the embalming of bodies, on the those of deceased llamas. And they basically would simmer their corpses in boiling butter. And these are Tibetan Buddhist holy men. Yeah. Uh, not actual llamas of anyone out there. Yeah. Confused, right. just,
1: just to be clear. Right. Yeah. Although that would be a great llama recipe, probably. Yeah. Uh, on this, uh, on the, uh, this uh, subject of funeral butter usage, uh, I did run across uh, the fact that in ancient Egypt, uh, of course, ancient Egyptians were known for their, um, elaborate, um, uh, Rights of embalming. We've yeah. we discussed this uh, a bit on the show in a couple of episodes at least. And uh, they used various things. I mean, they seem to have used pretty much everything uh, right? Uh, in, in this practice. Anything you could get their hands on that could be used to preserve uh, the corpse and give it a lifelike appearance. Uh, and they would use butter, along with sawdust and sand, as a way to plump up desiccated flesh, either by stuffing it into the mouth or through incisions in the skin. I for-
5: for some reason, that makes a lot of sense to me only in the sense of that, like, I know a lot of plastic surgery now involves injecting animal fat into huh. skin. So, like, if you're going to try to form flesh somehow, whether it's dead
1: or alive, that seems like a natural place to go, right? Yeah. I mean, especially for the ancient Egyptians who I believe we've mentioned on the show before, were were have some of the earliest examples of what is essentially plastic surgery. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then...
5: What about Buddha butter? <laughs> this sounds like somebody's got to patent that if they haven't already. I'm sure there's probably some company out there already. It's oh, yeah. A picture of the smiling Buddha with a stick of butter in his hands. Uh, well, 2,500 years ago, there were butter sculptures called Tomas, which were made to celebrate Shakyamuni Buddha's victories. Now, today, there's actually still an annual butter festival that's celebrated in March as part of the Mon Lom Festival, I believe that's how you say it. And at this festival, thousands of butter lamps are lit, and these signify the wisdom and light of the Buddha. These are made from clarified yak butter, and they line the streets. Now, donating such butter to the monasteries is actually believed to bring good karma because these it allows the monks to craft the lamps for this holiday. So there's another one.
1: Yeah, this one is fascinating. Uh, in that uh, Kosrova book that I mentioned, "Butter: A Rich History," she goes into it uh, at, 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 at in depth. And I'm not going to attempt to uh, to share everything here. If you want to read more about it, you should definitely pick that book up. But uh, she she says that the that we have this modern uh, tradition of creating these tomas. And, uh, these, uh, the, the modern tradition dates back probably to around 641 CE. Okay. But I, and I, I think this, though, refers specifically to the version that survives today and not that, uh, that earlier tradition that you uh, alluded to. Okay. So, torma, as you mentioned, traditionally yak butter, but they'll also mix in roasted barley flour okay. or sampa. Uh and then sometimes wax as I'll uh describe here. So traditionally, this is crazy, the monk would use only yak butter with uh the sampa and uh they would form a, a range of shapes and designs for tantric rituals and offerings. And the monks would have to cool their fingers uh and sc- uh to sculpt the butter clay. They okay. would continually dip their fingers or the clay itself into a bowl of cold water uh or the snow, and often they would be working in like a really cold room. Okay so it would be super tough where this is not just a thing where someone would grab some butter and you know a small bowl of cold water and then oops i've got to uh, you know work around with it a little bit and look i made a sculpture no they would spend months on this and the uh, the artist would often suffer illness frostbite arthritis and uh, and then at the end of all this the sculpture is just going to melt away in the spring so it's this <laughs> this perfect symbol of of impermanence yeah. uh, much like the tibetan practice of, of crafting mandalas out of multicolored sand Wow. It, well, all
5: right. So it's easy to do this in Tibet because mm-hmm. it's cold there. What happens if you, I'm going to jump ahead in the notes here. What happens if you want to sculpt butter here in America? <laughs> because it's a thing. Yeah, It's not holy necessarily, but the butter cow, I mean, has anybody out there seen a butter cow before? I'm talking about a life-sized butter sculpture of a cow. Uh, it might strike close to home for some of a, our listeners, you might have uh, – f- I first heard about the Butter Cow on the West Wing when the character C.J. Craig does this whole celebration talking about how great the <laughs> Butter Cow is. But uh, it was actually first uh, sculpted in 1911 by J.K. Daniels at the Iowa State Fair. And you basically start with wood, metal, wire, and steel mesh to frame the 600-pound slab of low-moisture, pure-cream iowa butter (laughs) that's what (laughs) at least that's what the iowa state fair says um they put that in a 40 degree cooler and apply more layers of butter until you've made a life-size cow uh now some of you out there are going whoa that's a lot of butter that's wasted well unlike the the tibetan practice that we were just talking about earlier this butter is supposedly recycled and reused for up to 10 years after oh that's good to know yeah uh but it's interesting like present day, we can put them inside a big cooler. Mm -hmm. But in Tibet, they had to go outside with cold water and they're getting sick, but they're like still doing the same kind of you know, aesthetic practice.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's uh, it's interesting too to note that eventually you have uh, t- uh, Tibetan monks that are engaging in this practice moving uh, down into warmer portions of India. Ah. So how do you do this if you're if if it's uh, you know, a warmer climate? Right. Well, monks now residing in India are often forced to use ghee or margarine mixed with paraffin wax. So that's where the wax comes in. Gotcha.
5: Play. Okay. And that probably helps keep it all together.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, another um Eastern tradition I ran across uh, comes from Chinese Buddhism. Uh, according to Chinese Buddhist master Tai and the successive states of soul transformations in reincarnation uh, basically line up with the stages in the transformation from, from milk to ghee. And I think that fits in rather nicely with uh, what we read in the opening. You know, this mm-hmm. idea that in the same way that, that a soul may go from life to life to life and it's kind of this refining process ideally as you work towards a complete removal from the wheel of death and rebirth. Yeah. Uh, also, we're seeing this—you uh, know—the the sunlight, the grass, everything moving towards butter, as the <laughs> I guess the the butter is the, the pinnacle of human achievement. Yeah. Uh,
5: well, it's interesting because you know when you read up on butter and people talk about like the ancient practices involving it, almost always they bring up the Bible because it's like one of our most read modern texts mm-hmm. that references butter quite a bit.
1: Yeah, there's a there's one part in particular that's uh, that's that's worth pointing out. You know, not just for the the Bible, old. I mean, basically, Abrahamic tradition as as a whole, because it concerns Abraham. Yeah, he's uh, preparing food for three angels of the Lord who are visiting in Genesis eighteen. And if you think back to our our John D episode, we're talking angels of the Lord here. These are these are terrifying, right. beautiful beings. They've taken human form, sure, but these are these are the guys that the way you know lay waste to cities. Yeah. What else are you going to give them? So welcome them with, but butter. Yeah, they they said, "Hey Sarah, help me fetch the uh, bread and butter." We got three angels of the Lord coming, and it worked out. They apparently thought the butter was delightful. Good. It's probably Kerrygold. <laughs> They're <laughs> you, like, not you, paying. Us, you got to pull the out the best stuff when <laughs> the angels
5: of the Lord come. Well, that leads me to a totally opposite, unrelated to the Bible butter cultural phenomenon, and that is. The Yule Lads of Iceland. Oh. Now, Joe, our co-host, insisted that we had to bring this up. He recommended it to us. We've talked about the Yule Lads before. I think it was maybe last year's Christmas episode. Yeah. We were talking about them. But if you don't recall that, uh the basic gist is in Icelandic lore, uh instead of, or maybe it's along with Santa Claus. I'm not quite sure. There's 13 children who visit Iceland's kids during the 13 nights prior to Christmas, one each night. And they have these amazing names. There's all kinds of, uh, of Yule lads like Sausage Sniffer and Door Liquor. But there is one that is specifically related to butter and his name is Butter Greedy. Uh, at least that's what it translates as. Uh, it, so the gist is that you're supposed to put a shoe out on your windowsill. Uh, and if you're good, each day a Yule lad will leave you candy in the shoe. Mm-hmm. But if you're bad, they fill it up with rotting toma uh, potatoes, rotting potatoes. And so I'm wondering about Butter Greedy. Like, presumably he eats all your butter if you're bad and he also puts uh, rotting potatoes inside your shoe. But it, it immediately popped to Joe's mind when we said, hey, we're doing this episode on butter. And he was like, there's got to be a Yule Lad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. There was. Yeah. because In a bit, we're going to talk about some other um superstitions and folk beliefs that line up with this idea of protecting that butter from – you know, real world thieves, but also supernatural threats, because this is the, this is a super food stuff. Yeah. And especially in, in, you know, in the winter, you're going to need this to survive. Right. I mean, think about how much work goes into
5: making it, especially like when you, are when you're not talking about an industrialized process, right? Right. You're making it by hand. Like you're going to really covet and, and, uh, conserve this stuff.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's survival. Um, uh, real quick before we move on, I want to point out that, uh, Lord Krishna in Hinduism, there's a, you know, he's a noble, important figure in, uh, so many of the, the epics. But it's, uh, it, it there's also this tradition of young Krishna, kind of like baby Krishna. Okay. You may have, and a number of you may have seen pictures because he's depicted as basically this blue baby. Yeah, Krishna. I kind of remember this. Yeah. And he's a trickster and he's always getting into mischief and one of the things he would do is steal
5: butter. Oh, okay. Well, that's quasi-related to the next instance of butter, which a lot of you are probably familiar with, and that's ghee. Uh, My wife uses ghee all the time in cooking. Uh, essentially, in Hindu sacrifices, though, during the Vedic period, ghee, it's a, it was created because it's a kind of clarified butter that's made with various grains and vegetables. And back then, it was thought to satisfy the hunger of the gods. It would ensure order, it, that make sure order was maintained on earth. And there was a ritual called Jatakarman uh, that was performed at the birth of a boy and involved presenting the baby with ghee honey and gold. All right, so some of you out there are probably wondering, well, clarified butter, I, I like that. What's the difference between that and ghee or, or what's traditionally called Uzli Ghee? Well, they've both been made by melting butter over low heat, allowing the water content to evaporate so that the milk solids settle to the bottom of the pan. Then what you do is you you skim the surface, you clear the fat, it's poured off and the residue is discarded. But Here's the difference. Clarified butter has the fat poured off as soon as possible. That way it keeps the milk solids from browning. For usli ghee, the butter is simmered until the solids are golden browned. And this is what gives it this nutty flavor. I'm sure many of you out there, if you've, if you've had Indian food, you're probably familiar with this flavor. You might mm-hmm. not know that it's ghee, but it's, it's a, oh, it's delightful. Um, and the vegetable ghee that was mentioned earlier, that's actually made from hydrogenated vegetable oils. Um, and it basically resembles shortening. Oh, okay. And then another one that Joe brought to our attention. This is a weird one. He started talking about this yesterday and I got a little nauseous. <laughs> uh, then I did the research on it bog butter.
1: Yeah, this one originally came up a little bit in our our research for the episode we did about uh, ritual regicide. This yeah. idea that um that you would have certain ancient uh cultures that would ritually murder Kings or failed kings, you know, rulers or failed rulers, and one of the examples comes up in these these early European cult- cultures that would utilize the bogs. Right. Uh, you would find these bodies in the bogs that had been ritually murdered because the bog was not; it wasn't just a place you dumped something you wanted to get rid of. This isn't like the mafia taking somebody out to a swamp and dumping them. This the bog was a sacred place, and it was a place where it was you know it's a, a fitting spot to deposit yeah. the body of a king that had been killed in a sacrifice. Especially
5: because of its preservative qualities. It, it makes me think, like, it's interesting, like, bogs were sort of, to Ireland and Scotland, what um, the, the very arid desert was for ancient Egypt.
1: Yeah, it results in mummification, which is yeah. why we, we know so much about the bog people and, in this case, bog butter.
5: So you're probably going, wait, what is bog butter? What does that have to do with dead kings buried in bogs? Well, 430 samples of bog butter have been excavated from peat bogs in Ireland and Scotland. And they date back as early as 400 B.C. Basically, it's buried several feet deep in these bogs in huge quantities. Uh, and I first thing that popped in my mind was, is this just like raw butter or is it in something? Mm-hmm. And we turned to a, an academic article about it and it's, it turns out it's both. Uh, It's either just a lump of butter, like a big lump of butter, (laughs) or it's in a container that's usually made of wood or it might be wrapped in animal bladders. And you're probably going, why are these people? Okay, I get why they're preserving their dead kings, but why are they dropping butter in the bog? Well, it's probably because the bogs have a well-documented ability to preserve that, and butter was really valuable. I mean, it was so valuable that it was used to pay rent and taxes. And in some areas it was actually used to help waterproof fabric. Huh. And it was used in everything from building materials to candles. So burying it in a bog well you could have been doing that to preserve it, or, or maybe it was a way to change its flavor. And I wrote, uh, next to this in the notes, <laughs> because I'm thinking like, Ugh, what does bog butter taste like? And it's, so it seems like nobody's really eaten bog butter. I mean, maybe they have, but I don't think it's like the idea is like you dig it up thousands of years later and it's so much better. You know, like it's not like that. But the butter. Here's the other thing. It was also thought to cure illness. So hmm. some people placed it next to a person who was ill at the time and they thought it might absorb their disease. But what happens if the victim dies? Well, then you take that butter and you bury it in a bottle. Huh? Okay. So maybe you really shouldn't eat that
1: butter then because it's filled (laughs) with the disease. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, that should be like a, that should have been like a full moon entertainment directed DVD movie, like attack of the bog butter. There's still time. There's still time. (laughs) I can see it like moving and crawling around. Maybe even animating a butter cow. Oh, oh
5: yeah. That's the culminating scene is a butter cow comes to (laughs) life and chases somebody into the bog.
1: All right. Well, let's see what else we have here. Uh, Real quick, in passing, uh, we did find an African example in remote regions of Ethiopia. uh, There's still some uh, cultural use where uh, uh, of butter, where the bride to be is lacquered with uh, butter and red clay. Huh. Okay. Kind of a you know a a preparation for marriage. Yeah. Uh, But uh, one of the more fascinating examples that we came across, and this ties back into this idea of butter theft, uh, are these just various traditions and beliefs that are where one would protect the butter or attempt to steal butter through magic. Yeah. So in Norwegian, uh, it's something called uh, the smore cat or the butter cat. And uh, it's a bajara, I believe, in Swedish and a tilberi or snacker in Icelandic. Hmm. It was a creature of spun yarn. That uh you know a, a sorcerer would make, and uh, it sucked milk from other people's cows and returned it to its master wow butter homunculi yeah made of yarn that's yeah. pretty cool yeah that's crazy and there's it, like a whole tradition of uh, of various like thread based uh weaving based magic yeah which is very very curious because you, you think about the creation well, the creation aspect of all of this yeah. like we're talking about using one like a magical use of one technology to tap into another technology. Right, right, yeah. So uh I've I've also read, and of course, you know, traditions are gonna vary, but I've I've read some accounts that the Tilberry was created from a human rib dug up from a graveyard and brought to life uh, when the uh, commun- when communion wine is spit on it three Sundays in a row. Man, Very all right, this is again. This has to be in our butter horror movie. So <laughs> you
5: take a human rib, mm-hmm. you spit on it for three weeks, and then you uh, presumably you add yarn, mm-hmm. and then you've got your butter homunculus cat
1: being that yeah. goes and steals butter. Yeah, Oof. or, or milk at least. Oh, yeah, but, milk. But the, but the butter is still very much at risk. And so you have all these magical protections that are utilized to protect uh, the butter, including the magical butter knot. And this was a symbol that was used to magically protect uh, butter in Icelandic traditions. And, uh, I had an image of it that it kind of looks like, a, what, a, a pentacle, mm-hmm. except one that is kind of skewed so that the, the base is, lo- is, is broader and wider than the top. Okay. So it looks like, you know, a, a kid misdrew a pentagon or something.
5: So this is a symbol that's drawn near the butter to protect it or is it, is it drawn in butter?
1: Um, I think both. I oh, my understanding. Okay. Okay. Is that it kind of varied. You would just, the symbol had to be associated with the butter. Mm-hmm. But, um, I did see some other examples, uh, of various things you would do to the butter to safeguard it, including one, uh, right. That involved driving a rusty nail from a coffin into the side of your butter. Okay. And that would protect it from going bad or being stolen.
5: Interesting. All right. Yeah. I'm just
1: collecting more
5: ideas for my butter movie now.
1: Yeah. And, and Hey, if, if anyone out there really wants to make a go at the, the <laughs> butter horror movie, Again, check out that book by Elaine Kosarova, Butter, A Rich History. It's in print right now. It's in digital form. Uh, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Best butter book you'll ever read. On that note, let's take a quick break, our final break. And then when we come back, we will discuss butter and war.
2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: All right, we've returned. So we
5: started off by talking about that Dr. Seuss story about the Butter War. And... It sounded vaguely ridiculous, right, (laughs) that these two cultures would fight each other over which side of the bread they would put their butter on.
1: Yeah, it was the Ukes versus the Zooks. And as one uh, propaganda poster in the book uh, reminds us, Ukes are not Zooks. Keep your butter side up. And it sounds crazy,
5: but we came pretty close to something similar here in the U.S. Maybe not a war necessarily, but there was some hysteria for sure surrounding Butter, <laughs> uh, and it all started in France in 1869. Emperor Louis Napoleon III offered a prize to whoever could make a low-priced version of butter for the lower classes and for the military. So it was butter, butter for war. Mm-hmm. The winner, and poor people, yeah. oh yeah, exactly. Uh, the winner was French chemist. I'm going to get this name wrong. Hippolyte Mege Moré, uh, and he invented margarine which we all know and use today.
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting how he figured it out because he basically made that connection that we, we pointed out earlier that yeah. a lot of the fat is coming from the animal itself. Right. So he said, why not process it from the animal itself?
5: Yeah, it's made from, well, at least his version was made from beef tallow. Um, and he sold this patent to the Jurgens Butter Making Company and they eventually became part of Unilever. And Unilever is still one of the world's leading producers of margarine. Huh. So... When it arrived here in the U.S. in the 1870s, there was a political economic battle between manufacturers of margarine and manufacturers of butter. And it led to, in 1886, the federal government had to pass the Margarine Act which put a restrictive tax on margarine and demanded that its manufacturers pay a prohibitive licensing fee. This is a a quote from the article that I read about it in National Geographic. It said, Pro-butter political cartoonists pictured factories dropping everything from stray cats to soap, paint, arsenic, and rubber boots into the margarine mix. And a barrage of dubious scientific reports hinted that margarine caused cancer or possibly led to insanity. Ah. What's that remind us of that we just talked about uh also from this same period of time? Oh, green tea. Green yeah. tea. Yeah. People were saying that it made you crazy. It made you hallucinate. Or it was ultimately because p- the manufacturers were putting illicit substances in it like iron mm-hmm. filings. But in this sense uh the the cartoonist i I think this was propaganda. I don't think uh necessarily that this margarine had a uh, stray cats dropped into it, <laughs> but uh, why did this happen? Well, okay, state politicians began fighting over the color of margarine. They were saying that coloring it yellow was false advertising because margarine's naturally white, it's made from tallow, and that's after it's processing but thirty two states here in the u s passed laws to demand that margarine be dyed pink ah. instead of yellow. And the Supreme Court actually had to intervene. And they overturned the laws because they said, look, it's illegal to enforce the in- adulteration
1: of food. Yeah, uh, like That sounds like some straight-up Dr. Seuss nonsense right there. The yeah. idea that someone would say, actually, if you're going to sell that margarine, you got to dye it pink. Yeah, it's just straight-up, uh right out of the Dr. Seuss book clearly must have inspired
5: this story. Mm-hmm. They They, they must have known about it. But yeah, it's just crazy to me. You know, I think about like all the insanity that's going on in our government right now and the back and forth, like haggling and uh, kind of just nasty rhetoric and um, mm-hmm. it feels like oh this is just a product of today and then you look back a hundred 150 years ago and you're like oh no like it was just as silly people were yelling at each other about making margarine pink
1: yeah I, yeah you can because i can imagine the way like modern headlines and social media would pick up on it like oh this legislator just introduced a bill to dye all of our margarine pink yeah what's going on yeah, exactly
5: <laughs> so all right you think this story is over it's not by the time we get to World War II, the United States needs margarine because the depression and the war have led to butter shortages. Like we said, mm-hmm. butter's its a valued commodity. So margarine became more palatable to Americans because it was made with hydrogenated vegetable oils instead of animal fats, like uh, the one we were just talking about with the ghee. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, but during the war... Margarine was even sold with capsules of yellow food coloring to get past all the fury about dying. (laughs) So it came white, but then you would add the yellow. So when you put it out on your table, it looked like butter. Wow. Except in Wisconsin. Wisconsin wasn't having any of this (laughs) uh, because using yellow margarine in Wisconsin was a crime that was punishable by fines or imprisonment.
1: Oh, my goodness. So you look at
5: the yukes and the zooks and you think well that couldn't happen well we got pretty close we we were at least imprisoning people and in, and finding them in one state in the united states uh for how they used butter and or margarine
1: well you know to bring it all back around to the uh, the yukes and the zooks and the butter battle book uh in in as i was getting ready to, with my notes for this episode, I, I ended up going to the library, checking out a copy of this book, because we, we have a number of Seuss books in the house, but we don't have the Butter Battle book. Mm. So I thought, oh, I need to read this to my son. He loves Dr. Seuss. I love Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Did he, he like it? He liked it. He had certain, he had questions about it, questions that I could only vaguely answer, because yeah. the, spoiler but the book ends with a standoff as this arms race over how how best to spread your butter has led to essentially the, the development of these little pill-sized uh, nuclear weapons and the ukes and the zooks are at a standoff who's going to drop theirs first right. and it, and other other yukes and zooks are going into bomb shelters and it's it confronts mutually assured destruction the idea that if nuclear weapons are ever deployed uh in a, in a large scale manner, it's just going to be complete destruction on both sides, not to mention environmental uh, destruction as well. So I haven't read the
5: book, but I, I watched the cartoon version mm-hmm. this morning. And if it's similar, what really impressed me was that it's a story that doesn't hold your hand or a child's hand by mm-hmm. saying, like, this is what you're supposed to learn from this. Right. Because both sides are hysterical in their rhetoric against one another and how they use butter. And they basically are amping up their their technology in the like kind of silly Dr. Seuss like weaponry way, right? They're like weird slingshots and yeah. things that catch slingshots and throw them back. Mm-hmm. But like it it it's it's interesting in the cartoon because it's like a father telling his son, like, this is why we hate them. Yeah. This is why you have to destroy them. And here's my personal story as to why. And usually in a children's cartoon or a story like that, you go, oh, well, that's the authoritative figure. I will listen to him and I will learn a lesson from him. But the lesson to be learned is like these people are all crazy and they're they're going to end up killing each other.
1: Yeah. Like you read Seuss's The Lorax and they have that wonderful environmental message at the end. It's also kind of dark that says, look, the things are bad and it's up to you to to change it Mm and make it better and here's something you can do like it's all symbolized in the planting of the seed you can plant more trees you can care about the environment and we might be able to reclaim some of what's lost but at the end of the butter battle book there's no suggestion right it just shows you like how crazy the world has gotten and what kind of state we're in and seuss doesn't have an answer and i could totally imagine
5: bastion being like um, so who was right, the Ukes or the Zooks, or what am I supposed to yeah. do?
1: It it raises a lot of, a lot of questions. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I I'm, I was tempted to say what it raises more questions now. And mm-hmm. and, it, and it's more of a potent story now because we have this renewed, uh, discussion of a potential nuclear arms race and, and, and nuclear tensions once more. Mm-hmm. But this is, but it's never, <laughs> it, this is a story that's never, uh, become, uh, unimportant. Like, right. I don't think it'll ever be passe. Right. Like right. you and I will be dead and in the
5: ground 200 years from now. The Butter Battle book will probably in the bog, still maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe
1: that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still it's still a wonderful book, but also a terrifying book for adults because the threat of nuclear war is terrifying and the threat hasn't gone away. And so uh, in continuing this this effort to to highlight nonprofits, organizations that depend on donations uh, on our our episodes, I wanted to to uh, do a call-out to the Arms Control Association. okay? You can find them at armscontrol.org. They were founded in 1971. They're a national, nonpartisan membership organization dedicated to promoting public understanding of and support uh, for effective arms control policies. Uh, so they have uh, public education and media programs. It has a magazine, Arms Control Today. They provide policymakers, the press, and uh, just the interested public with authoritative information, analysis, and commentary on arms control pro- proposals, negotiation, negotiations, and agreements and related national security issues. So maybe that's what you'd do if
5: you've got a kid who reads the Butter Battle book and says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I, I suspect the Arms Control Association probably has some media materials that at least for us as adults helps us to sort of better think about uh, arms races and mutually assured destruction. Indeed. Indeed.
1: So there we go. From, from butter to mutually assured destruction.
5: That's what we bring you here at yeah. com. And hey, also, I want to know some answers because we couldn't find them here. If you know what human butter tastes like, I want to know. <laughs> if you know what bog butter tastes like, I want to know. What's the weirdest butter that you've had, like from a, from a, an animal? Uh, there's all kinds of places to tell us. You can go on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter. Tumblr and Instagram. You can write us uh, at Blow the Mind on all of those platforms, or you can go visit stufftoblowyourmind.com. You want to learn more about mutually assured destruction or butter? Well, that's where we've got all of our podcasts. We've got all of our videos. Every blog post that we've ever written. Check it out.
1: Yeah, and as always, you can reach out to us. You wanna you want more episodes that focus on uh, food products? You want one on cheese? Let us know. You want more episodes that focus on uh, the threat of nuclear annihilation? Let us know. We can do that as well. We walk uh, both sides of the street here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Send us an email. Let us know at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. at
2: For more on
3: this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: What are you waiting for?
1: Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit
3: Visible.com. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at two hundred k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically, for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's PACASO.com.
0: Top 302 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.